Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the dreamlike films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, so I am really pumped to discuss this. The 1979 Don Coscarelli classic, Phantasm. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, welcome back to our seasonal special where we discuss the iconic Halloween films of Luke's childhood. What traumatic coming-of-age story will we uncover today? If you'd like to follow along, then, as of this broadcast, you can find 1979's Phantasm on Tubi for free, or just about any other streaming platform. This is not a hard one to find, and... Even if it was more obscure, it would be worth the effort anyway. And then you, like us, will grasp that the real horror isn't the monsters or the death spheres or the ice cream man's haircut, but rather the obvious yet uncomfortable truth that there is no guarantee what happens with our remains when we leave this mortal coil. Where would this rank in the list of possibilities of things that could be done to your remains? I mean, IRL, like zero, right? I, but con conceivably, like if you could be shrunk into a dwarf and used for slave labor on a foreign planet, would that be your preference or would you rather be like cremated? So this is something I thought about. Do you think tall man went about this the wrong way? Do you think if he had just simply embraced capitalism and set up a corporation offered this as a service that people would just willingly buy into it as a way to extend their life mm, i don't know i mean if i was like old and my alternative was death i think i'd pick this yeah you just have to maybe write up a contract make sure everything was fair and square so you don't lose customers like hey you know you serve your your uh your term out on the the red dimension and then after, you know, X decades, we let you go and you could be a superpowered dwarf monster wherever you want. Yeah, see, I'd take it. I'd yeah, go I mean, for that. It's kind of like a, a capitalist nightmare, but it's not the worst thing that could happen. I mean, I'm unnaturally afraid of death, though, and like don't necessarily believe anything happens to me, so... Um, as any rationalist philosopher would tell you, like, existence is naturally better than no existence, even if it is as a, a dwarf slave. I don't really think any fear of death is unnatural. No, I, I don't think so either. I mean, that's, that's how you said it. That's how you worded it. You have an unnatural fear of death. Oh, all right. That's fair. That's a fair point. A natural fear of death would be like those people who, who think if they step outside they uh will just instantly get killed by a swarm of bees or trip down a step get killed by a i don't know stray bullet whatever you know uh, agoraphobics i have my fears but let's not go into that tangent let's get back to phantasm <laughs> um so has has this been like a staple movie for you over the years like I know you've seen it before, but do you watch it often? No, not at all. I'm not really one for rewatching movies. 
uh, unless I'm showing them to other people, I, very rarely have, do I rewatch films just for myself. There's a, I don't, I used to do it a lot more than I do it now. Um, usually I'll watch something I haven't seen, but around Halloween, that's an exception. Like I have regular movies that I watch every Halloween, like this one, but then there's also movies that are just kind of comfort movies for me that like I'll use to fall asleep. And this one is one of those as well. Um, like I feel so at home in this movie. I'm, I'm happy to have it on whenever. If I need something to fight insomnia, I have a list of boring YouTube channels to go through, and that is enough to, to put me to sleep. See, it's not to help me fall asleep because I fall asleep really easily, but I find it peaceful to have like voices and talking on in the background. It, it just comforts me. So like as I wake up during the night, um, you know, to like turn over or uh, get a glass of water or whatever, I, I like being able to hear voices in the background. The the silence is is disturbing to me. Uh, I'm not too worried about si si silence. I think I'd be a little bit more worried if I just kept hearing voices when I would wake up. They'd be like, oh shit, who who's in my house? No, I mean, thankfully my, my, my wife likes it as well, but um, I having something on the background is is comforting and this is a comfort movie so uh, i i'm always happy to have it on no i think the first time i watched this film was was definitely with you and it was either what end of middle school beginning of high school so it's been a long time is that the last time you saw it yes oh wow okay now um, i remembered the characters and i remembered the main aspects of the plot but I did not remember any of the particulars at all. I guess you haven't seen any of the sequels then. We watched this one and the second one back to back, but I remember nothing about the second one. The second one's more of like a big budget, almost action movie at points. I like it, but it, it's a totally different film from this one. So it's basically the phantasms to phantasm. Like I don't, aliens uh, to alien oh yeah kind of yeah that's a fair comparison or i guess uh terminator to terminator 2 but the third i'm not really a fan of the third fourth and fifth ones i i think they get progressively worse to where the the fifth one is borderline unwatchable to me but it's because the the third fourth and fifth ones like try to develop a mythology such that these movies make sense and i think that's counterproductive to like what the movie is this movie does not need a complex mythology built behind it no and if if you're really gonna look at the theming for the horrors there's not really any consistency no, and they try to build that, and it just doesn't work for me. But I, I don't hate them. Like, if someone had them on, I would watch them. But for my money, it's the first one and to a different degree the second one that really make this franchise um, worthwhile. When that, did the most recent one come out? Like, a couple years ago? 
That's what I thought. It it's it was really bad, right? I I think it's almost unwatchable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I vaguely remember reading something along those lines. But I know there are some people who like it. Like, uh, it, it's not is not universally condemned. Is it like the same people that enjoy Birdemic? No, I think people sincerely like it. I mean, there, it's not, it's not that it's a, a wholly bad movie. Like, it's the same writer director, most of the same actors as this one. So you've got like continuity. It's like engaging and funny. It's it, it's even got footage that was shot for this first movie but wasn't used. The, the fourth one does as well, has like old outtakes from, from this movie, um, which is kind of cool to see. I just think it works too hard to make the movies make sense. And I think it relies too much on like a goofy sense of humor that I don't really get into. I read that this film was originally something like three hours long. Yeah, they they cut a lot out of it, and a lot of that footage was thought lost, I think, until the 90s when Don Coscarelli rediscovered it, and that's how it ended up being used in the fourth and fifth movies. But yeah, I'm really curious what a long, like what an uncut version of this movie would be like. I don't I don't know if it could keep like the interest of the average person if it was three hours long. Maybe I mean probably not. I would be down for sure. I, I would definitely enjoy watching that. But you know that that makes me think like. So Don Coscarelli has said that the like surrealist filmmakers like Brunel and Jodorowsky were like big influences on him and that he wanted to follow sort of a dream logic in his movie. But I can't like the movie doesn't strike me quite like that. It, it doesn't seem like it's that surreal. Um, and, and so I wonder if a longer version would have had more would have been stranger almost. The end of this film sort of matches that theme. Perhaps there was more stuff like that throughout the film in the original cut. Yeah, that's what I wonder. But anyway, before we get to the trailer and stuff, I definitely want to talk briefly about the score for this movie because this is probably my favorite horror movie score of all time came out around the same time as Halloween, which I'd say was like my other favorite score. So, um, and, and they share some things in common, right? Like both um, repetitive, hypnotic synth. Uh, but the music was by Fred Myro, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, and Malcolm Seagrave. And Fred Myro, I think, was involved in scoring all of these movies but hasn't really done anything else that like i'm that familiar with he did the scores for soylent green and there's one other one i rec i recognized yeah <laughs> well he did the score for lolly madonna triple x <laughs> uh and threshold the blue angels experience 
But no, he did he did the scores for Coscarelli's first two movies, which I have not seen. I think they're like coming of age dramedies, but I think that's how he got into scoring movies. This uh, score has been sampled a lot. Like DJs and producers have driven the value of this record up because it's such popular like sample food. Something like this has probably gotten re-releases, right? On vinyl? Yeah, I actually have a re-release. The original the original is not outrageous. It's like a hundred bucks for an original pressing, but um no, I have one of the two thousands pressings. What do you think of the score? So I watched the remastered version, um, the one that's on Tubi. And this movie was already, I remember having a lit soundtrack back then, and it is really crisp now if you watch the updated version. It, it feels very 80s, and I, I realize it's, like, you know, 79, so it's on the cusp. But, man, it this really just strikes me, the entire film strikes me as like an 80s horror film. Like, I'm ready to just lump it in there. Uh, I think it's... I think it's of its time. Like when I watch it, it seems like it was made the same time as like Halloween to me. Like they have, it definitely seems earlier than like Friday the 13th to me. And the, the look of the film is extremely seventies with the fashion and the furniture and stuff. Yeah. Especially their house. Their house is very seventies. I we're going to get to this, but I'm so jealous of Mike's room. Like, huh, this, we'll get there. Since you brought up the the remaster, so I've recently watched this movie in three different formats. I watched my Japanese VHS tape. I watched a remastered uh, UK DVD, um, and I've watched it on Shutter, and. Of the three, the VHS has the best picture. It's not as sharp and focused as like the high def release, but it's lit differently. It's much brighter and like more vibrant colors, whereas the remastered version is kind of like muted, like it's got more drab tones. I think this is probably the most prevalent or noticed most prevalently in the opening mortuary where if you watch this in the original like low def VHS, the you don't really think much about the walls. They look, you know, like whatever, like marble. This guy's walking around in a marble um, like chamber with tons of like in embedded coffins right but when you watch it on the remastered you can clearly tell that the walls are actually just kind of papered over with something that's supposed to look like marble yeah they used um they used uh contact paper like you would put on the bottom of kitchen drawers this is a pretty old um this this is a tale as old as time when it comes to bringing old media into the into the next generation, right? Where the remaster will 
expose or make things look slightly different because when someone's making a film or video game or whatever, you, you really take into consideration the medium that it's going to be experienced on. And, you know, flat screen HDTVs didn't exist back then. So there's a lot of props and shows that don't have a lot of detail or in films that don't have a lot of detail. And you don't notice that because the camera can't pick it up until it's uh, turned from like 180p to like four digits p then becomes glaringly obvious yeah no it's one of the reasons why i like watching things on vhs but that's not even what i'm talking about i'm just the the color the color is more vibrant on the vhs than it is on the dvd which i think is really bizarre i just ha i can't think of another case where that's true anyhow uh so i don't have i don't I can't read you the back of my box because I have a Japanese tape, but um, I am going to read the back of the embassy release. Uh, so the the tagline on this one is where the dead are no longer that way. And it says when two brothers uncover the startling secret of the living dead following the murder of their friend, what seems like a horrible, unending nightmare becomes terrifying reality. A mortuary's embalming cellar is the site for supernatural evil, including a floating sphere with razor-sharp protruding daggers which seeks out victims and drains the blood from their heads. As the brothers learn more and more about what is really going on at Morningside's mortuary, they get deeper into trouble until it may be too late to escape. You know, in, in all of the promotional media for this uh, franchise, the balls are really pushed, but they aren't really in the first movie that much. No, I think they... So, Coscarelli has said that in the first movie, like the first movie came from um, a dream. And so I always thought of the ball as just like a throwaway image that he had dreamt up. Um, but yeah, in the sequels, they play a pretty prominent role. And in the by time the third one, there's like spheres with souls in them that talk and it just gets very com complicated. Complicated or convoluted? Uh, both. Hmm. Yeah. J Jody is a sphere for a while, for like two movies. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I, it's very strange. Maybe there's a good reason why I don't remember the second one very well. No, that it's not that bad in the second one. The second one's good. It it gets bad in the third one. Second one, totally worth watching. All right, let's play the trailer for the first one, and then we'll talk about the story. Phantasm. Is it a nightmare? Phantasm. Is it an illusion? Phantasm. Is it an evil? Take me home. What, what? No questions. You must take me home. 
phantasm? Is it a fantasy? So I know you said you did not like that tagline. If this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. I'm not crazy about it. I like it okay. It's not like one of the all-time best, but I'm happy with it. So when this movie starts, you know, first of all, I should say everybody's seen this movie, I think. If you haven't, go watch it. Um, it, it it's a classic and it deserves to be seen. But I don't think we're going to have anything to say about this movie that has not already been said. Uh, I just want to do it because I really personally love it. So we're not telling you anything you don't already know, I guess is my point. I uh, mean, I, I definitely agree that um, a lot of people our generation have probably seen this film, but definitely not newer generations. This is not really a franchise that has uh, stuck around in a, in a modern world. I mean, on the one hand, that's true. On the other, like the, the most recent one just came out like a few years ago. And I, yeah, I straight to DVD though. Yeah, I think so. Or straight to streaming. But yeah. you know, I, I also think that if, if anybody had not, if anybody in like the horror community had not seen it, I think um, Joe Bob Briggs did a, a Phantasm Marathon a couple years ago for Christmas. I think that put a lot of attention on it. If you somehow had not managed to see these before, but I'm yeah, saying, I you know I've never seen a you know uni I, I've never seen a, a haunted house at you know Universal Studios using this IP. So I don't think it's you know that mainstream. Uh, I I think if someone's listening to our podcast, they've seen this they, movie. They probably have but seen it, yeah. I could be wrong. So anyway, we open up with um, a guy in a graveyard with um, a woman in a purple dress. And uh, the guy is Tommy. And the woman is just known as the Lady in Lavender. But this guy promptly gets killed. He, he was apparently a production assistant on the movie, and he just really wanted to be in a horror movie where he got killed. <laughs> so that's why he's here. Yeah, wish granted. Yep. The Lady in Lavender is later revealed to be an alter ego of our primary villain, played by Angus Scrim. In, in character, he's only known as the Tall Man. But he is our um, mortician 
who works at this this mortuary and cemetery morning side and I, I i know we just talked about the inside of the mausoleum like looking kind of fake in the remastered version but otherwise i love the look of this thing like i think it looks fantastic inside all of the set design is pretty lit um most all the houses look natural probably because they are it's probably just houses that belong to the production staff but this is an entirely made set yeah they made it out of a warehouse so it was pretty much all built from scratch would you call this an indie film yeah it was made on a budget of uh coscarelli estimates three hundred thousand dollars and they it, it took them a very long time to film this like i think they filmed over a couple of years because they could only afford to rent the equipment they didn't own any equipment they rented it on weekends because if you rented it on like a friday it wasn't due until the following monday so you could rent for three days but pay a one-day rate and they just gradually filmed the movie in little bits like that it's kind of like a video dead scenario, but nowadays I don't think anybody's going to rent anything for free over a weekend. No way. Yeah, no, but I guess that was the that was the situation they were in there. So, yeah, this was an indie film. It was very successful. Um, I think it made like 12 million at the box office and then who knows how much in rentals. But anyway, so we see um, one of our main characters, Jody. He's wandering around on the inside of this mausoleum and he keeps hearing like weird rustling noises around. Uh, but he's also looking for his parents' grave because his parents died, what, like a year before this movie starts, you think? Something along those lines. We also see out in the cemetery his younger brother, who's probably like 13, you think, 12? Probably 12. Anyway, his, his little brother is, is named Michael, and he's riding his dirt bike through the cemetery. Uh, this also was not a real cemetery. They just rented like all of the tombstones that Fox had and, and set them up in a park. Yeah, there's no way an actual cemetery would let you drive a dirt bike on their property. Yeah, I mean... John Waters did shit like that just without permission. <laughs> but no, I don't think they're going to invite you to. So Michael is riding his dirt bike and we see all these little dwarves in brown robes hiding behind tombstones. They look exactly like Jawas. They predate and, Jawas, though. Oh, They do. Well, no, Star Wars came out first, but... Um, I I watched the or I listened to the the commentary with Coscarelli, and he said that someone called him after just seeing like a trailer for Star Wars, and said like, "Hey, they have the dwarves in this new Star Wars movie," <laughs> because they had already like conceived of the idea. He said they thought about changing their color, the color of their robes, but they ended up just sticking with the brown. I mean, it's not like short brown thing in robes isn't a super original design right 
Yeah, and this movie it unabashedly lifts or plagiarizes other things, which we'll get to. Um, so I don't think he would have had any stipulation with um, or reservation with using uh, using Jawas. Apparently, he wanted he wanted to have little people play them, but it ended up being uh, his neighbor's kids. Really puts some scenes in perspective, though, when you see these things getting shot. Yeah. So the we're we're back in the mausoleum, and Jody is looking at his father's grave, and we get our first kind of jump scare of the movie. Um, the tall man puts a hand on Jody's shoulder and says, "The funeral is about to begin, sir." And then he does like uh, an eyebrow cock that uh, is fantastic. Like, how do you like Angus Scrim as our bad guy? Has he been in anything else besides Phantasm? He was in Coscarelli's earlier movies, but I don't know if he's been in a non-Coscarelli film. Um, I know he, I've heard him talk, and in real life, he's a very like, genteel sophisticated like soft-spoken person and this role was like entirely out of character for him let's see sometimes the best villains are played by actors who don't normally fit that role like um you know season two of american horror story you had the actor who was the farmer from babe playing a Nazi scientist in hiding did an amazing job. So I'm looking at his IMDb and he's been in a lot of stuff, um, mostly horror movies and mostly stuff after phantasm. But, uh, his first movie was a short film where he played Abraham Lincoln. And, and I think I heard that that's how Coscarelli first saw him was in a stage production where he was playing Lincoln. Which kind of makes sense. I can see this guy's Lincoln. I mean, they're both uh, both giant men. Well, Angus Scrim is not that giant. He's about the same size as um, as Bill Thornsbury, who plays Jody. Uh, they had him wear platforms on his feet to be taller, and wear suits that were like too small, so he'd look larger. Oh, man, it's just camera tricks? Uh, partly, at least. I mean, he's a tall dude, but he's not as giant as he seems in this movie. Hmm. The funeral is about to begin, sir. Okay. Sir. <laughs> I, I think Jody's really funny in that scene. When okay. Says, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. See, so I'm going to get into this more later, but these characters just feel like like family members almost to me. And they did when I first saw this movie. Like they just seem not just like real people, but like people I know and want to spend time with. I don't know, I can't explain it. Unlike any other movie, I feel that way about this one. I think that might just be because you've watched this film like a hundred times. No, because I I felt like that's the reason I've kept watching it is the the first time when I first saw it I felt that way. But 
I don't know. Anyway, we see that Michael is there to spy on Tommy's funeral because I guess Jody didn't want him to come. And afterwards, after the funeral, when everyone else has left, Michael sees the tall man pick up Tommy's casket by himself and put it in the back of the hearse. And so this shocks Michael. Apparently they had to build that casket partly out of styrofoam so he'd be able to pick it up. Oh, yeah, that thing is undeniably hollow. Afterwards, Michael goes to see this fortune teller and a young girl opens the door um, and takes Michael in to see her grandmother, who is the fortune teller, and she doesn't speak, but she and the girl seem to communicate telepathically. And we find out that Michael is afraid that Jody is going to go away and leave him. And we see some flashback with he overhears Jody talking to a friend about traveling and leaving Michael with his aunt. And we get this great flashback scene of Michael chasing the car, Jody's car. And the the score in this part, like this is the first time in the movie where I'm like, uh, this score is really magical. Grandmother has told you before not to worry. If he does leave, he'll take you with him. So after that, we get a scene inexplicably, like straight out of Dune. The old woman asks Michael to put his hand in this black box. And when it starts to hurt and he can't withdraw his hand, she tells him that not to fear, that fear is the killer. And that's what she wants him to learn. This so, kid is clearly not, you know, Jene. Was it Jene Besserit? What is it called? Yeah, it's something like that. Very, very on topic um, because of the, the new Dune movie coming out on the 22nd. Yeah, it's just, it's so. I've never read like a clear explanation of why Coscarelli just like plagiarized to this scene I, I have heard him acknowledge that he has and, th and this is not the only dune reference in this movie um just find it really strange i mean he was very young when he made this movie and like young people get easily obsessed with something and want to like show it off all the time so i'm wondering if he'd like just read dune and just wanted to incorporate it into his movie that's how i've always imagined it so let's see don coscarelli was born in 1954 so in 1979 he would have been 25 yeah so he was in his early 20s when he made this movie do you know he came out like what 15 years before this film is 15 years enough time to plagiarize a book for your movie? Or, uh, I'm sorry, um, reference? Yeah, I mean, he was, it, it was, it was pretty big, like, notorious novel immediately. 
I mean, they started trying to option it for a movie like in the late 70s, around the same time Star Wars came out. All right. When did uh when did Dune come out, the movie? The David Lynch movie yes. in in 1984. Oh, well, still that's Phantasm still have some years on that. Yeah. So anyway, I've just always found this scene odd, but what I really like about it is that after Michael leaves, um the the girl and her grandmother just like laugh maniacally. I like how the box on the table just vanishes. I had to do a double take to to look at the effect. Yeah, it's just a it's just like a fade out shot. Yeah, I know, but you're not expecting the box to vanish. So you're like you're looking at the characters and then you look at the table, where the fuck did the box go? Oh, maybe it's just me. Yeah, no, the box fades out and so does the the money that Michael paid. <laughs> yeah, you ain't never seeing that money again. No. But in, do you think that these characters are like evil? Are they like what is their what is their motive? Why do they laugh like that? I mean, they're creepy fortune tellers. Maybe that's just part of the shtick. I also feel like these characters were probably featured more prominently in the original cut of this film. But I can't I can't like argue that strongly because I haven't seen the the additional footage that was used to make the the other movies. Uh, it doesn't. Not that I remember. Does it mention these two? Um, it's mostly stuff between Jody and Michael. Uh, but I I really like that. I like how ambivalent and strange it is. Like this is the kind of thing that you would dream, right? Where you might even mix a scene from a book with a different story in a dream. And so if we are to take this movie as a dream or inspired by a dream, like scenes like this seem to fit in well, but they don't make a lot of rational sense. These are definitely, um, well, I'd imagine these are definitely in the actual world of this film because this girl comes back in a later scene. Yeah, so not to skip too far ahead, but we see her a couple of times going into Morningside by herself. And then at one point we hear her scream. We don't see what happens to her, but we it's something happens to her inside of Morningside. So why do you think she's going there? No idea, and it's never explained. I just imagine it would come up in a later movie it doesn't Ooh. so the the what what i've always hypothesized is either she is somehow in league with the tall man and so she's going to see him and tell him like michael is on to you or she is just curious after hearing Michael's story and is going to investigate. Well, I mean, she opens a broom closet, gets hit with a bright light, and then we never see her again. So, yeah. and she does not come back at all? No. Wow. Yeah, there, this is the end of this storyline. And when I... When I listened to the director's commentary, I thought, well, maybe, you know, they'll say something about it. Nope, they don't. 
So anyway, after this scene, um, we see Jody and Reggie hanging out, and Reggie is their friend, and he's also the the ice cream man, and they're hanging out on the front porch playing a song on their guitars. This scene feels very genuine. Yeah, so Bill Thorn Bill Thornsbury wrote that song for the movie. I actually, I mean, it's cheesy and, and silly, but this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. We also see in the background the first of many Dos Equis beers. Yeah, this is all over the place in the background throughout this film. Yeah, I don't think that was uh like intentional product placement or anything no i mean nowadays if you have like unintentional product placement you just gotta like make sure you uh rotate the bottle around or something i like that after they're after they're done playing reggie says we're hot as love that always makes me laugh every time i see it but more importantly we see reggie using his tuning fork which is gonna come to play a role later in the film. And the way they film it makes it obvious to us that it is going to play a role later in the film. Doesn't it make an odd noise when he uses it? I mean, it makes a normal noise. Uh, hmm. A tuning fork just makes an A note so that you can tune. That was, that's a normal yeah. tuning fork noise? Oh, I'm clearly not a musician. Yeah, it's just an A. So um, after this scene, we see Jody going into a bar, and the bar is called Dune. So this is another Dune reference. Yup. And uh, they're playing a disco version of the, the score. What do you think of this? Like, Do you like it when movies are, are like self-aware of their musical score? I think it's fine, but I don't remember it, so I gotta play it. <laughs> okay. So, does this sound like more crisp to you, the audio? Because I don't remember it sounding like this when we first watched it. I mean, I don't know. I watched the DVD before recording. Uh, okay. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, I I mean, I have the I have a vinyl record that I listen to, but I don't remember it sounding crisper or not. No, I didn't really pick up that it was um you know a 
discoized theme from the film, but uh, you know, I believe it. Yeah, I just I I kind of like when uh, Tarantino does this sometimes, where like something is part of the score, but then somehow the movie is self-aware of it, and I think it's clever. But anyway, so Jody is is here hanging out, like talking to a lady, and Mike is spying on him. The lady turns out to be the lady in lavender who killed Tommy in the opening scene. And they go out to the cemetery like to make out and Mike follows them. And I I think this is funny. When when she shows her boobs, Jody goes, Wow. And then we see Mike in the bushes and he goes, Wow. <laughs> like they it seems like a real brother relationship but mike hears the jawas and he runs screaming through the cemetery and uh jody jody says to the lady in lavender hold on it's my little brother and i think he has some kind of problem so he runs and catches him um and michael tries to tell him that there was this scary noise like something was trying to get him in the bushes and Jody says it's probably just a gopher in heat. <laughs> and uh, Michael gets pretty defensive and says it wasn't a gopher. Uh, and Jody just gives him the keys to his car. Uh, they they drive a, a Barracuda, which plays a pretty large role in the film. Um, but uh, I think I wish I had had a brother who like gave me the keys to his car and let me drive it home when I was like 12. How the 70s were a different time, huh? You could just give car keys to a 12 year old, be like, hey, you know, take this back. Well, I also think it's like a small town thing. Like, uh, I mean, I guess this is somewhere in California, but it looks like they live in like a small, like, desert town. At least he's like a, a mechanic in this film, right? So he's not completely unfamiliar with vehicles. No, it seems like him and his brother have a relationship that's built around like the car and working on the car and driving. But apparently um, Michael Baldwin, who plays Mike in this movie, learned to drive on set. Anyway, so after Michael leaves, Jody tries to find the girl again, but she's gone. Thankfully, we know because she's bad news. Um. And then we get probably the most famous scene in this movie, which is a dream sequence that Michael has. And he wakes up in bed and his bed is sitting in a graveyard and the tall man is standing over him. And these zombies pop up out of the, the ground and grab him. What do you think of this scene? It's very unexpected. And it does fall more in line with the dreamlike stuff that we were talking about earlier. It's kind of a shame that most of the stuff or the that most of the movie doesn't have stuff like this. It's also, this is prominently in the trailer. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a really famous scene from this film. I see it on like, you know, scariest horror movie scenes ever lists. Um, I actually think it looks really silly and I still, I, I really like it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I I like it because it's the kind of thing I think a, a kid would dream. Like it's the kind of nightmare that a kid would have. Um, 
but I I don't actually get the like this is the scariest scene ever hype. No, no, I don't get that either. But um, really, the the tall man looking into the camera the whole time sells it. Yeah, I I think Angus Grimm is great. Like he was born to play this part. The next day, Mike sees him on the street, the tall man, and the tall man walks in front of Reggie's ice cream truck as the cold air is coming out of the back. And he does this weird thing where he like turns and waves his hands and makes a, an expression that I've always thought he looked like ecstatic during this scene. Like he looked like he was enjoying it. But in the sequels, they reveal that he hates the cold and that he was um, in pain during this scene. So I guess that's how you're supposed to interpret it. I did not get that at all. Yeah, no, that's what you find out in like the second or third movie. It makes sense, I guess, that he wouldn't like cold seeing as, uh, well, spoilers, I guess. Where he's from is very... Very red and very hot. Yeah. So later, Mike's working under the the Barracuda, and the dwarves are on either side, and they start shaking it. And he gets trapped under there for a moment, but he sees a foot and hits it with a hammer. It's Jody, of course. Um, And he tries to tell Jody that the little brown things were in there, and Jody asks if he's sure it wasn't the retarded kid Timmy up the street. And and Jody laughs at him and says he was crazy. So yeah, I I you know, there's a moment coming up where Jody believes Michael, but I really like that this movie did not fall into the trap of like what a lot of 70s and 80s movies do and even like 90s and current movies where like the whole thing is based around a kid is seeing something or a wife is seeing something and the father or the brother whoever doesn't believe them until like the very very end and it's clear that the only reason they don't believe them is like build suspense for the audience and so it seems like a really fake kind of suspense and i'm glad this movie doesn't do that it's one of the things that i i really think is like a credit to or virtue of this movie i'm I'm trying really hard to think of one but i i don't think i have any pet peeves like that uh yeah it just i mean it's the same reason why like i don't like romantic comedies but one of the reasons i don't like them is that i find them stressful and it's not because I'm like worried is the guy and the girl going to get together in the end and live happily ever after. Like, of course they are. It's a romantic comedy. But it's the way the, the, the movie clearly tries to play with the emotions of the audience. And it's always because there's some misunderstanding between the couple, usually as a result of them not communicating with one another. And so there's like a dramatic irony where we know what really happened, but the characters don't know what really happened and they're fighting over it. And that is super stressful to me because it's such a, a fake machination of the film. And I feel the same way about the horror movies where characters don't believe each other. My first, my first thoughts kind of just go to the X-Files where Scully somehow remains incredulous 
in the face of all sorts of bizarre scenarios and events. But I don't know if it really agitated me. You know, it's, it was a show. It had to have a character, a consistent character dynamic. Yeah, it doesn't agitate me in that show. Um, but anyway, so that's an, it is all a tangent. I'm just glad this movie does not do that for very long. Um, but right now, Jody doesn't believe him. So Mike gets ready to go and investigate on his own. Like he straps a bounty knife to his leg and he sneaks into the mausoleum through a basement window. And as he wanders around, we hear the dwarves like making their noises. And then a silver sphere starts to chase him. This is probably the movie's most famous visual, right? And we talked before we started recording about like what a prominent role the spheres play in the advertising. But right now, we don't know anything about this thing. Uh, we just know that there's a strange flying sphere chasing him around. Actually, you know what would have been a pet peeve for me? They just thought about if the brother just like instantly believed everything that was going on. Like, wow, you really saw these things? If we Let's investigate. <laughs> no, this movie strikes a perfect balance. Like where he's doubtful, but then when he's presented with evidence, he believes him. Like that, that is something that does bother me in films. I can't think of any other specific examples or I guess any specific examples. I didn't even come up with one, but there you go. This guy in a white hat grabs Michael and it, Michael manages to escape just in time. So the sphere impales itself in this man's head and it drills into him and drains his blood out the other side and like a big streaming arc and he collapses and we see him like piss himself what, what did you think of this whole death so he, i initially thought he pissed himself but that's not the case here um this is just like another another tall man but maybe not as tall no because we see red blood too come out of his head this is definitely not a one-man operation. There's at least two men in this operation. This is the second guy. But when Tall Man gets his limbs cut off or has any injuries at all, he leaks and bleeds yellow. Yeah, but this other guy doesn't. He has red blood and he pisses himself. He might be working with the Tall Man, I don't know, but he's he's not the same. He doesn't have yellow blood. I mean, he is working with the tall man. Yeah, I'm just saying he he bleeds red blood, so he's not the same as the tall man. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe tall man does bleed a little bit of red blood at some point. I don't know. I've only seen the first film. Yeah, no, he has yellow blood. Hmm. This, I, I think they actually explain at some point that this guy is not working with the tall man. He's like an enemy of the tall man, but I don't remember well enough. Like in, a, in another film yeah oh well i mean that that's definitely not the impression i got watching this i mean you also have to consider that uh when when we got the kid hiding in the coffin he's about to open the lid to to reveal the kid but gets called back by the tall man to go do something i mean why would enemies be doing that 
I don't I, I honestly don't remember and I don't know what their dynamic is and I don't think it matters because this guy is only in the movie for like 10 seconds to get killed right but this scene the between the blood and the piss it was like too much for the MPAA and this scene originally got this movie an X rating um, but Somebody who was like a friend of Coscarelli's basically called in a favor and they got it downgraded to an R. I cannot imagine this film with an X rating. Originally was. I mean, this was right at the sweet spot in like American history where the censors were were had no patience for anything violent. But yeah, it's almost like I mean it's almost like a kid's movie. Like, I, <laughs> I, I think this is a movie for, like, teenage guys. <laughs> no, no, you said kid's film. <laughs> yeah, for, like, you know, kid, kids it's the same age as Michael. Age story. This is a coming-of-age story. <laughs> it essentially is, yeah. I think the perfect audience for this movie is, like, an 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old. But maybe it's just because that's when I first watched it. I mean, 14-year-old, okay. 13-year-old, uh, all right. Maybe there's got to be a cutoff somewhere. I don't know. If I, I if I had kids, which, like, nobody needs to worry. I'm not having them. Um, but <laughs> if, if I did, I would totally show them Phantasm. Like, I resent being censored when I was a kid, so there's no way I would do that to another kid. The policy in my house would be like, if you're old enough to want to watch that, you can watch it. But maybe that's why I shouldn't have any kids. I'm definitely not about how we're going to get that's going to we're going to get way off track. All right, let's let's just keep going. <laughs> OK, so the tall man steps into frame on the other side of the hallway. And I think this is really funny. Michael, like starts to say something like he says mm, like he's gonna come up with an excuse and then he just says oh shit and then they have like a game of of chicken where they're both like taking a step towards each other and eventually michael just runs um and there's a chase scene but he slams a door on the tall man and the tall man's fingers get stuck in the door frame and Michael chops them off with his knife and we see yellow blood ooze everywhere um, but he grabs one of the fingers and takes it with him and so we see him running home and at this point the score almost gets industrial like shrieking violins and it's very cacophonous I thought this was really effective too. It it it's very creepy. We should mention he took the finger just because it was wiggling around on the ground still. Yeah. And he took this, it as evidence so he right. could try to convince his brother that something is actually going on. So we see Jody wake up the next morning and he finds Mike on the steps with a shotgun where he fell asleep. And uh, I think what this is a good moment to ask. What do you think of these two's performance? Like, do you think they're good actors? No, I genuinely believe they were brothers. Like they had a good chemistry or they have a good chemistry. Can't imagine that changes at all. 
yeah, I think they're I think their performances are great and you know, we can't usually say that about the acting in horror movies. And most of these are like amateur actors. Like a lot of them were just not these two, but a lot of the people in who fill out scenes are like Coscarelli's family or friends. Um, but I, I think all the acting's believable in this movie. And in this scene, Jody like he's calm, but he looks kind of bewildered. He's like, what the fuck is going on with my brother? Um, and he unloads the shotgun. And then Michael just says, I've got to talk to you. And this is when he shows him the finger. I, I got to draw attention. The steps that he wakes up on are carpeted and segmented. And the railing is just a series of thin like wooden banisters that go down the whole length of the stairs. And this is definitely actually somebody's house because some of these banisters are broken. Like if it was a made set, like I'm pretty sure they would have fixed them. Well, I think it's like an in joke during the course of the movie. These, these, um, uh, what's the word? The, the like pill, the little wooden pillars keep getting knocked off. Oh, it keeps happening during the film? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, it happens over and over again. Like, the scene uh, during this, the whole fly attack scene, I think, like, two of them come off. Um, later in the film, Jody is carrying Michael down the stairs, and one of them comes off. Uh, the tall man knocks one off at one point, I think. Yeah, they keep I, coming I totally off. Missed, I, I totally missed that running gag. Yeah, I think that's what it, I think it's a running gag. Like maybe the first time it was an accident and then they just kept doing it. Like, well, gotta replace them anyway. <laughs> just knock them all down. Yeah, but I'm sure this was somebody's house. But as soon as uh as soon as Jody sees the finger, he's like, Okay, I believe you. And that's when Michael tells him about seeing the tall man picking up Tommy's coffin by himself. And so Jody says they'll go see the sheriff um, and tells Mike to go get his evidence. And so Mike goes to get the finger, but it's gone. And in its place, there's this giant stop motion demon fly that gets in his hair. And he manages to trap it in his jacket and like fight it down the stairs. And him and Jody are both fighting it, trying to shove it down the garbage disposal. Like, it's obvious how they did this scene where they're just wrestling with a denim jacket, but I think it looks really cool. I think the puppet's kind of lame, but uh, the puppet... this is an indie film, 1979. They're working with what they got. Yeah, the puppet looks really stupid, but um, I like the whole physicality of the fight scene. It's very, um, it's very slapstick. I don't think my first thought would have been try to shove this flying animal down a garbage disposal. Yeah, I probably would just put it outside. Uh, or put it on the ground and hit the jacket with a hammer. Oh, anything else. Well, they put it down the garbage disposal and we think it's gone for a moment. Um, but Reggie shows up. And he wants Mike to help him in the ice cream truck because he says the ice cream's going to be flying fast and furious. 
and but the fly comes out of the garbage disposal and attacks Mike. And I love Reggie's reaction during all of this. He looks like truly bewildered and taken aback. And he's like, what the hell's going on? But they finally get the, the fly back in the garbage disposal and uh, presumably effectively killed this time. I don't know what they're planning to do exactly, but Jody gives Mike a shotgun. And he says, you don't aim a gun at a man unless you plan to shoot. And you don't shoot a man unless you plan to kill. The warning shots are bullshit. You shoot to kill or you don't shoot at all. This sounds like someone, something someone would tell their little brother. I mean, it sounds like something you would hear in a firearms class, too. And then uh, Jody immediately lasers his brother with the gun that he's loading. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Moments like that remind you that, like, oh, what do you... I guess Jody's supposed to be like 30. Yeah, late 20s, early 30s. He doesn't act completely mature any either, is my point. Like, he's raising this child, but he's kind of a still a kid. I mean, his plan is to eventually abandon the child. Yeah. With who? Who's going to take care of the kid when he's gone? He says he's going to leave him with an aunt, but... I don't I mean I wouldn't want to be burdened with a kid when I was 30. Like I don't blame him, but it's your flesh and blood. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I'd have no relationship with the kid. Like these two seem relatively close and like they have a good relationship, but I also wouldn't want to be tied down to a kid at that age. Anyway, Jody's going to go check out the mortuary. And he sneaks in and is pretty immediately attacked by the dwarves. He manages to shoot one in the head, but he almost hits himself. Like, I was kind of shocked he uh, he managed this without shooting himself in the head. First off, I don't know what he's doing here. Like, what was the mission? He commits burglary to an occupied dwelling and then almost kills himself and shoots a kid before running off, right? Yeah, I think Mission he's, accomplished. I I think he's just trying to like verify uh, what's going on or like see for himself cuz he knows something weird's going on cuz Mike has like a yellow-blooded finger that moves by itself. But he doesn't know exactly what's going on, so he's just investigating. He fires this gun right next to his ear. Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He shouldn't be able to hear for the rest of the film out of that side of his head. No, it really, like, it, it looks like it's very shocking it did not hit him in the head. This, this certainly isn't the only film that's, like, made that cinema sin. No, for sure. Every action movie ever. But, but anyone that's ever you know, have, has any experience with firearms, like winces when, when they see shit like this. I don't know. I pretty much differentiate, like, like as soon as I see guns in movies, I don't even think of them as, like, a real thing anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at that fantasy toy. <laughs> like, because that's how they're treated. I suppose. So he gets out of there right away, which I guess is smart that 
he allows the dwarves to chase him off. But the hearse starts to follow him. And another car pulls up. And at first we're not sure, like it looks like no one's driving, but it ends up that it's Mike in the in the Barracuda. And there's a car chase between the Barracuda and the hearse. And they keep saying that no one's driving the hearse. And in fact, I think it's Michael that says, there's nobody driving that mother. And they start shooting at the the hearse from the car, from the car's sunroof. Uh, and finally, they they cause it to crash. And when they go to look, they see that a dwarf is driving and the dwarf is Tommy. So this is where we find out that the dwarves are like people who have died and have been shrunk down. So they call Reggie and they, they ask him to bring his ice cream truck. So he shows up and they're putting Tommy in the back. Uh, and Reggie says he's only three feet long and he must still weigh 300 pounds. And then he's worried that Tommy's going to leak all over his ice cream. In this movie, Reggie was kind of intended to be like comic relief. Like, do you think that that works? His hair is comic relief. Like, what is going on there? He still has that exact haircut. No way. He does. How? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I guess that hairstyle is truly timeless. Like, yep. You know, I'm sure I'm sure people made fun of it in 1979. People are going to make fun of it now. Knights in the Dark Ages would have bullied him for it. I oh, mean, like, like maybe, maybe a dinosaur would have laughed at him on the one at one point. I thought like, well, maybe he just grows it out each time they were going to make a phantasm movie so that there's some continuity with the character. But no, I've seen him in interviews, and he was on Joe Bob Briggs just a couple years ago, and uh, yep, still got it. Same same ponytail. Anyway. Yeah, so there, it, Reggie goes home, and there's like a silly jump scare where his neighbor talks to him, and then we see him talking with Mike and Jody, and Mike is asking... You know, if they're turning these these dead bodies into dwarves, like what about their mom and dad? Because he they're up there too. This seems like a like something a kid would really worry about. Like in this situation, this seemed like a really legitimate fear. Yeah, definitely. But you know, we never get to see the parents in this film. Well, Mike looks in the coffin, and there's nobody there. Yeah. So never get to see the parents. <laughs> nope. Nor in any of the other movies. They're they're never there. Which I think, like, I've heard this talked about, and I've heard Coscarelli talk about this movie as sort of a... Like, yeah, it's a horror movie, but in some ways it's like a teenage boy's fantasy where, like, he and his cool brother are the... have total freedom. They don't have parents there controlling them. Like, I think that's kind of, that's part of the allure of the movie. Yeah, maybe it's like a, maybe if you make a wish on a monkey's paw, this is how it would turn out. <laughs> right, something like that. Anyway, Jody tells him just to forget about it. And then Red, <laughs> Reggie, let's play what Reggie says. Because Reggie says he knows what to do. I see it, I see it all now. 
What we gotta do is we gotta snag that tall dude and stomp the shit out of him, and we'll find out what the hell is going on up there. Yeah, we'll lay that sucker out flat and drive a stake right through his goddamn heart. You gotta be shitting me, man. That mother's strong. <laughs> so, yeah, I like, I like that Reggie's like, I know what to do. <laughs> We're just gonna snag him. We're just gonna go commit murder. Beat the shit out of him. So Jody says the first thing he wants is to get Mike out of there. And I think this is strange, but I guess it's the kind of thing that, like the kind of peculiarity that would be true in real life. He wants him to go stay at the antique store with their friends, Sally and Lucy. And they made a bet up for him in the back of the store. Like, did this seem weird to you? Yes. It seems uh, it seems there's a lot of random cameos in the middle of this film. Well, maybe they had, like, friends who wanted to be in it, but the way I thought about it is they had to have somewhere for him to go, and maybe they were friends with whoever owned this antique store, and so they just kind of built the story around what they had access to. Makes sense. But like I said, it also seems idiosyncratic enough to be like a real situation. Like I'm sure if people, you know, looked at all of the details of my life and things I do, there would be things that seem odd just because most people don't do that. Like most people aren't still at their antique store they own at, you know, 10 o'clock at night ready to babysit a kid. I mean, tall man, you know, can't exactly check social media and find out, you know, the friends list for these brothers. So they can't just like go down the line, start searching houses and businesses they own. So, you know, in theory, it's a good hiding place. Yeah. But I really like this dynamic because Sally and Susie are treating Michael like he's a little kid. They're like, you know, when you get sleepy, we made a bed for you. And he sees an old photograph with the tall man in it and it comes to life and he looks out at the out of the picture at mike and then mike takes charge he tells the girls they have to take him home right then and no questions they somehow agree to this yeah they they do what he says in several points like he he shows them who's in charge yeah and inadvertently gets them both killed. Well, we think so. Yeah, they, they're they done. There's some question around that, but... Oh, wait. No, I forgot about a scene that happens later. That later scene is of questionable... Like, I don't know which of those scenes really happen, you know? Anyway, we'll get there. Meanwhile, Reggie hears the dwarf moving around in the back of his ice cream truck... And somehow he crashes. We don't see that, um, but we know that he does. And at the same time, Jody is at home. He's dreaming about being in the mortuary with the tall man, and these hands come out and pull him into a crypt. But Mike and the girls are driving, and they see Reggie's truck. And again, Mike is like, stay in the car and don't get out. And he gets out to investigate. And the dwarves start to attack the car. One of the girls just opens the door and, like, lets the dwarves in. 
and Mike is back in at this point, but he gets pushed out the back window. Like this looks really silly. I'm, right? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure how they're supposed to write out a way for him to escape this situation. So, someone yeah. with their dwarf strength pushed him straight through the rear windshield. Yeah. But this gives us an excuse for what is one of my favorite shots in the movie, which is we see him laying on the ground, like on the road, and that's interspersed with Jody's face. And the phantasm theme is playing throughout this. And it seems like, like I've always got the sense that they're connected somehow in this scene. Don Coscarelli said in the, in the, commentary track that he wanted to show that they had a psychic connection i mean this isn't really um a thing that's exclusive to this movie right like there are uh, plenty of interviews where people think they have some sort of connection to a relative where let's say uh, someone's daughter gets into a traffic accident in the middle of the night and then the mom will wake up because she got some kind of like premonition or feeling that something went horribly wrong. Do you think that people actually have those sensations? No, I don't. But the literature is out there if you want to read up on that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I don't really believe in it either. But if you have stories that might prove us wrong, let me know. I'm always curious to hear them. So he gets home, Mike gets home and he sits on Jody's lap and grabs his beer and, and like takes a swig of it. Um, and then he tells him that the, the dwarves got Sally and Susie and Reggie and Jody's like, well, better get up to your room now. And he carries Mike upstairs and I thought this was very insightful. Like Mike is fighting him and he keeps saying like, you're never coming back. You're going to die. He calls him a goddamn bastard. So like, it's not that it's not that Mike wants to go because he doesn't want be, to be treated like a kid and like locked at home is that he really thinks that like Jody is never coming back. That seemed like a very real and individual motivation to me kids get fixated on stuff i mean grown-ass people get fixated on stuff too but i think kids more so yeah but anyway i just thought this was a really effective moment it, like it shows what this movie's really about i think which is like grief and mourning and not wanting to let go of the the people who we care about i guess Except um, our parents, because we want the house to ourselves. Right. Well, they, I mean, I don't think there's there's like no sadness in this movie that the parents are dead, but they're just, they're not a presence here. Like, I think that explains why Mike's so attached to his brother. Like, that's all he has. Oh, um, yeah. But anyway, let's take a moment here to talk about how incredible Mike's bedroom is. It's all like browns and tans like his his comforter is is like brown and red and tan stripes it's very like 70s color shag carpeting and then one whole wall is 
like a mural or a painting of the moon landing. It's really cool. Like, do you like this room? Yeah, it's pretty sick. I was actually wondering how exactly they put the picture up in this room. If it was a giant poster or if they actually painted something on this wall. But it looks like a photograph. I think it's either painted or it's like a decal. Yeah, it can be like a giant decal. But um, like the parents were so cool. They let him hang this shit up in his room. My parents would have never let me do that. Well, unless Jody did. I guess Jody could have, yeah. I mean, I I would have been allowed to put something like this up, but I never had anything this cool. But anyway, um, Don Coscarelli said that this uh, decal or whatever it is was... Um, in homage to 2001 a space odyssey because that's the movie that inspired him to want to make movies so that's kind of cool and so jody locks mike in and i've never seen this before but he wedges a a screwdriver in the door to like secure it shut and mike at first can't figure out how to get out but then he builds like a little explosive device by connecting a shotgun shell to the top of the hammer and, and putting a pin through it and then banging on the door and it blasts a hole in the door so that he can reach around and take the screwdriver out. I'm pretty sure if you did this in real life, you would die. Yeah, in the in the director's commentary, Coscarelli was like, I'm just glad that no kids like tried to mimic this movie and do this. <laughs> I'll show you, mom and dad. Well, I think most kids don't have a, you know, free shotgun shells just rolling around their desk. Yeah, but I, this is very industrious of him. Like, I wouldn't have been able to figure this out, but I also wouldn't have risked it. Maybe I'm just too cautious. I mean, he's been like the hands-on guy the entire film. He's the mechanic. He's the one with the dirt bike. And and now we got this stuff. I mean, he's the one that also thinks to bring a finger back. Yeah. He's he's really the brains of this operation. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. And that's why I say this movie in some ways is like a teenage fantasy movie. But anyway, he, he manages to get out of the room, but the tall man's there. He says, I've been waiting for you. And he picks him up and carries him out to the hearse. And Mike manages to shoot out the back window of the hearse. And so he ends up going out of another rear window and onto the street. And immediately the hearse explodes after he jumps out of it. Well, it hits a telephone pole, I think. Yeah, it hits something, but I I don't... Active driving is deadly driving. This is the this is the rule of like action and horror movies where cars explode very easily. But I had no suspicion or no feeling that the the tall man was dead at this point. No, not at all. Yeah. You know he's going to walk it off. Yeah, exactly. It it looks like quite an explosion, but yeah, we know he's okay. It, it, do you think there's some kind of like symbolism motif about going out the back windshield? Mm, I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> I, I don't think there is <laughs> i mean knowing coscarelli i wouldn't be surprised because i think he does try to build symbolism and stuff like that into his films but i don't know 
Like he's just trying to run from the future, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Jody is in Morningside and he's pulling out his parents' coffin. Uh, he, he opens it, but he can't look. He keeps his eyes closed. And then suddenly we get sphere vision. Like the sphere can see red and it starts flying towards um, Mike. Cause he's come in and he screamed, he, he, oh no, I skipped something. So the sphere is, is chasing Mike. Mike runs from it and he comes across the coffin. He does look inside and sees that it's empty and that makes him scream and, and run. And the sphere almost gets him, but Jody shoots it with the shotgun he starts to tell Jody that the coffin was empty, but then he says, forget it and doesn't say anything. I have such a weakness for monster vision. I always like it when movies do this. Like the sphere vision, you mean? Yeah. Ah, uh, it doesn't really do anything for me. Or like, I mean, the best one is predator vision, right? Like nothing will ever get as good as that. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't really do anything for me. I could do without it. Sometimes it's funny. Like, I think it's in slugs where there's like slug vision. <laughs> One of those killer animal movies, we, we see the vision from the animal and it's really ridiculous. Anyway, at this point, this is where the movie gets really confusing. And Coscarelli says this is all supposed to be dreamlike and surreal, but it's... I've never been able to tell if that's really the case or if it's just like chaotic editing. Because Reggie, who we think is dead, he shows up. He's been hiding in a casket. He says he found Sally and Susie and a few other girls and they were all fine and he let them go. And so he kind of rewrites what we thought was, was going on. Uh, and this is only going to be one of a few twists in the plot um, I, I really thought because I mean, it's been forever since I've seen this I really thought Reggie was going to end up being a tall man in disguise <laughs> did you yeah yeah I was like man I don't remember this this part so I was like well, does he just show up and tell him the girls are free and then he's just going to go back with the kids get them when their guard is down and no, but apparently he, not. He's in like five more movies. Yeah, he is our hero. He is the hero of the series, even though it doesn't seem like it in this one. Anyway, they find this room full of black canisters with dwarves inside. This, you know, some images like this, like this room full of black canisters, like it seems out of nowhere. Like, we haven't seen this in the rest of the movie, and it looks like something they just thought looked cool. But it really struck me as I was watching it. I was like, stuff like this and the sphere and other elements of this movie went on to become major parts of the series. And this is a series that spans, like, 50 years. Like, how absurd is that? It's crazy to me. That this like little low budget movie with like some cool images, then they spent like 50 years trying to explain these images. Oh, uh, I mean, uh, 
this definitely isn't the first the first franchise that has tried to craft like a mythos for multiple future entries and merchandising storyboarding etc it's yeah. always funny though to see a movie like a single movie nowadays try really hard to set all that shit up and then just utterly fail like uh was it that the new mummy film that came out with tom cruise yeah universal was gonna push that so hard into like a like a oldies monsters revamped universe like some kind of fucked up horror avengers i guess yeah i don't know i knew they wanted to do that but uh yeah that didn't happen yeah it just fell completely flat it's well just, they just try they're trying too hard this movie seems like the opposite where they were not planning on doing that and then they had to like yeah they're trying to do it retro retroactively right exactly yeah so that's that's what struck me but it's just amazing that that things like this have had the longevity that they have anyway mike falls through this kind of gate that we see a big red desert landscape with like a row of dwarves being marched across the desert. Did, did this strike you as another Dune reference? No, it's not really like a desert. It's more like a bed of gravel. Yeah. It made me think of a desert, just a red desert. Definitely a wasteland. I would coin it as a wasteland. Yeah, that's fair. So once, Jody or whoever pulls Mike out, they um, they come to this conclusion that the tall man is shrinking the dwarves because of the gravity and the heat on this planet where they're being sent as slaves. This is an, like it just seems so random. It is a big leap in logic, but does this does this prove to be true in the sequels? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, this kid, this kid's the brains, man. Yeah, this is like canon. They they really stuck with this mythology. Anyway, the the power goes out, and then suddenly everyone is separated. Reggie's in the gate room by himself. Mike and Jody are like outside, and Reggie realizes that the gate looks like his tuning fork. And so he puts a hand on either side to silence the vibration. I actually think this is a pretty cool idea. Like that a, a portal or a gate that transported you would work on vibration or frequency like this. Uh, I mean, but specific frequencies causing uh, supernatural effects is something that, um, you know, some corners of the internet would have you believe is a real and true phenomenon we just haven't found the right frequencies yet to achieve uh you know other world the otherworldly effects we're we're trying to target it's also the brown note do you know about the brown note no now apparently it's a theorized frequency that if heard by any living thing will just cause it to vacate its bowels <laughs> it matches the perfect resonance for a creature's digestive system thus and, causing it to you know open up and do you think this is real uh i mean that's definitely like the most real sounding one of all of them i definitely think it's more more viable than uh 
opening a gate to another dimension. I'm not sure. They both seem pretty ridiculous to me. I mean, if you're going to weaponize sound, I mean, it's just like way easier. Just make it really loud and make a sonic cannon to blow out people's hearing. You don't have to go through all this fecal nonsense. Uh, that's a good word for it. Anyway, instead of instead of closing the gate, it like opens it because everything starts to get sucked through. All the canisters are, are flying into the, the gate. And Reggie manages to get out, but there's wind everywhere. Like, it's super windy outside. And then the Lady in Lavender is there, and she stabs Reggie. Yeah, Reggie lifts, man. Let's, it's all them ice creams he has to move around. Because he manages to pull himself out of there on a flat floor. No <laughs> yeah. grip, no nothing. Nope. All these giant 400-pound barrels are flying all around him. But hey, you know, he also figured out a way to transport all the slaves like straight into the other dimension. Yep. You don't have to carry him in anymore. Just open the door like that. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> no, he's strong. He ends up being our action hero for the rest of the series. Anyway, jo Jody and Mike get away and they come up with a plan that they're going to trap the tall man in an abandoned mine shaft. And so... Jody goes off to remove the warning barriers that are around the mine shaft while Mike goes in their house to get ammo. But the tall man is there waiting for him. And then there's a weird, like, the tall man has a voiceover narration sort of thing here that he doesn't have anywhere else in the movie. But he says, you play a good game, boy, but the game is finished. Now you die. And that, that's it. That's the, all the voiceover we get from, from Tall Man. Did you think this was strange? I mean, so much of this movie is strange. Ah, uh, true. Yeah. It's just a lot of, it feels like a lot of disjointed imagery and dialogue slammed together. And maybe that's partly because, you know, there's, um, what, like an hour and a half missing from the original footage. Yeah, what? but... It, it, Coscarelli has also been open about wanting it to be like a dream and wanting it to be surreal. And, and I think it is. I think it accomplishes that. Yeah. You know, despite all of the, um, like the weird convoluted mismatched pieces of, of everything, you know, when it all comes together, you don't really have anything to complain about for the experience itself. I think this is a really entertaining film. Yeah. I totally agree. It's like against all odds. It worked. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, Coscarelli hasn't had a huge career outside of the Phantasm movies. Um, I think Bubba Hotep's really good, but I think that he has a lot of like natural instincts or, or talent as a director um, and, a, and a writer. And I, as I said, I think all these actors are, are good. But anyway, we won't get into into reviews quite yet. At this point, Mike remembers what the fortune teller told him, which was don't fear. And so he keeps running, even though hands are coming out of the ground and like trying to pull him in. He sees both the tall man and the lady in lavender, but he keeps running until he leads the tall man into the mine shaft. And then Jody rolls this big boulder onto it. 
like this seems ridiculous, but it seems like something that you might dream, like a solution you might come up with in your dream. I, I didn't watch it with that in mind, but yeah, you know, when you when you mention it like that, it is kind of dreamlike. And apparently, it was all some kind of dream, because in the next scene, we see Reggie and Michael sitting in front of the fireplace, and Reggie is saying that Jody died in a car accident that he was not killed by the tall man. And this is like a very sappy scene where Reggie is like, I'll take care of you. Like, I know you're scared and you're alone, but I'll try to, you know, live up to Jody's example. So were you like really confused at this point? Yeah, because I didn't remember this ending at all. <laughs> it's just like... It's so weird because in the thing we're supposed to think is a dream, Reggie dies and Jody lives. But then in the next scene, Jody is dead and Reggie is alive. Like, it's not just what killed him that's different. It's the person who died that's different. And now you're, you start questioning how much of this movie even happened. Right, exactly. So you feel like, or at least I feel like, oh, well, maybe it was all a dream. But then um, Reggie suggests they go on a road trip and Michael goes upstairs to get his stuff. And the tall man is in his mirror. And the tall man says, boy, and then pulls him in through the broken glass. And the credits come. So it seems like maybe it wasn't a dream. I definitely don't think trapping some like malevolent en entity like the tall man in an abandoned mine shaft is really going to stop him for any extended amount of time. No, it really wasn't a very effective plan. But there is some question throughout these movies, like how much the tall man is like a supernatural entity and how much is he just like a person because in one of the movies we find out that he used to be just an ordinary person well he probably was an ordinary person because of the picture in the in, in antique shop right right yeah it's kind of like an it situation something came and just took possession of him or assumed his likeness all right well let's i, let's... I would assume the mortuary had always been around but it was not always an outlet or it wasn't always a, a dwarf factory in secret. A, a gate to uh, the red planet. Yeah. Is that what it's called in the sequels? I don't remember, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Big fans of this film right here. <laughs> hey, I I love that. I don't necessarily love the, the sequels, but this one I, I, is very special to me. So with that said, let's get to final thoughts and and a rating out of four. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of theming in this film that doesn't have a lot of synergy, right? You have dwarves, yellow blood, metal spheres that suck people's, uh, I'm guessing, just fluids out of them. People that shapeshift, fortune tellers with divination powers and people that can uh you know make objects appear and disappear at will or at least uh play mind tricks that make it appear so but 
it all works because it feels genuine. That, that is that is the key word for this film, genuine. It all feels very genuine. The 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 relationship between the brothers is very believable. Man, I'm just like thinking of like things that are really sincere about this film, like specifically, and everything just feels like the intent is sincere. There's like no, uh, there's no like trickery. There's no like there's no like manipulation of like the viewer's emotions. It's just like the the production staff of this film just had a story to share. They got a script. They got everything together with the resources that they had. They put it all together and turned out like this really fun indie Halloween film. I mean, it's not marketed as a Halloween film, but it, it might as well. It might as well be. I guess this film is kind of missing like a like a neighborhood street with Halloween decorated houses, right? Like that's pretty much all it's missing. Yeah, it's not explicitly Halloween, but it feels like fall to me. It's definitely a fall movie. Everyone's wearing fall fashion, at least. If they were filming parts of this in the summer in that kind of clothes, I, I feel sorry for them. But I, I'm I'm I, I I'm not like in love with this film. I don't think it's perfect. Um, I definitely do not think that there is enough here to establish a solid mythology and a solid series of follow-up movies i I don't think it has any of that um it's definitely an afterthought that they tried to do that and you know you can't blame them for trying you know if this movie cost you know 300k and they made millions off it you know you might as well try again keep going live the american dream but this is definitely worth a watch for anybody that's a horror fan uh if you're listening to this you've probably have already seen it but it's definitely a movie that's worth sharing with friends. Um, anyone who's interested in older horror films, for sure. This is a, a solid three stars for me. Yeah, so I don't think this movie's perfect either. Like, it's, you know, I love the surreal dreamlike feel of it. But there are also a few points where I'm like, is this just bad editing? Or like, is this planned? I, I, I also think a lot of this one is just cool imagery that ended up being uh retrograded as like significant mythology um and and that's kind of silly to me i I don't like all the sequels but just like as leland said it's a totally sincere real feeling movie there's no as he said like audience manipulation going on here the characters really do feel like friends who or family who care about each other who are real i keep saying real but you know real characters or real people and uh, that makes me want to spend time with them it, it, this is a very comforting movie for that reason we have at its heart a relationship between brothers who like want to look out for one another and protect one another and that's in contrast to most horror movies that have characters who a feel fake b stupid and and c are usually annoying or like grating on me and here we have characters that i would happily spend more time with so for that reason alone this movie like i think that's harder to do than making a a plot that makes sense 100% of the time like 
plenty of movies have really logical plots, but not plenty of movies have characters like this that I get really attached to. And add on to that, I think it has one of the greatest horror movie scores of all time. And that score, together with the way the film is filmed and edited, it creates real like fluidity and atmosphere throughout the film. So for me personally, based on my watching habits and like my desire to make this film a staple of my Halloween, what's the term? Ritual. Sure, my Halloween ritual. This is four stars. Four star movie for me. One one of my favorites ever. I'm with, I'm with you there. I wish there was more of the surreal dream shit in in this film. And the original cut might have had it, but the world wasn't ready. You might really like the the later ones because they definitely have like okay. The way I think about this series is like here we have pure unfiltered Coscarelli. The second one, a studio gave him money and he tried to make a more mainstream film and they made him put like real actors in it and stuff. And then for the third movie, he was like, fuck that. I Like that was a horrible experience. I'm going to reject their money and like do what I want to do. And so the third, fourth and fifth ones are on very low budgets like this first one with his original actors back and like unfiltered Coscarelli. I just wish he didn't work so hard to try to build a mythology that made sense. And so they're definitely like of all of the movies, two is the most normal, like the, the closest to a normal film, but as authentic as the later ones might be. And as much surreal shit as they've got in them, uh, that world building stuff just rubs me the wrong way. Annoys me. All right, so if you have not seen Phantasm and you made it this point in the podcast, I, I really encourage you to go watch it. Um, even if we spoiled the plot for you, uh, this movie's like dripping with atmosphere and and just uh, good spooky season feels. Next week, we are doing one of my favorite Halloween movies of all time that I know is very much beloved in the horror film community that is 1988's Hack-A-Lantern also known as Halloween Night Leland this is going to be a first time watch for you right it is I am so excited to hear what Leland thinks of this movie because how often do you get to expose someone to a movie that's as bonkers as this one we're going to watch next week I am entirely excited. If you have not seen Hack-A-Lantern, watch it before next week. Uh, you can get it, I think, on all the streaming services, but it's definitely on Shudder and YouTube. Where did this Hack-A-Lantern film come from? Because I only heard of it like a couple months ago when you mentioned it for the first time. I had it... So I used to have a VHS copy of it back in the day that I bought from Video Store, but it was called Halloween Night. And... I thought it was kind of like weird and goofy back then, but for whatever reason, it didn't really like hit me hard. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, I rewatched it and I was just like, this movie is one of the most bonkers movies I've ever seen. Like, why did this movie not stand out to me before? And I don't really know. 
maybe I just needed age to appreciate it. All right, let's wrap this up. All right. Uh, so if you would like to uh, interact with us, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything that we do. And until next week, uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Sweet. So uh, until next week, everyone have a good one. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to us. And we'll catch you next week for Hack-A-Lantern. Ha 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 